Radiolab is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What if we could block a protein to stop runaway cell division? Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Radiolab is supported by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, exercising, cleaning. What if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com, Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <clears throat> you're listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. Yeah. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. This is Radio Lab. It has been an intense week. Just a horrible, hard, difficult week. Felt like the world cracked open, to be honest. Protests around the world, violence, just some really shocking moments. But also, and this is what I don't want to lose sight of moments of stillness and respect and silence i want to have a moment of silence for george floyd people have come to a stop fists in the air what we do know right now from our reporters on the ground is that this is a moment of silence and we would like to honor that as well been thinking a lot about those silences. All the silences that led to this silence. Honestly, there is so much behind what is happening. It's hard to find the words. Hard to know what is useful right now. But I want to offer some small things that we can share. One of those is that amidst all the pain and outrage, there is one thing that is about to happen, that is sure to happen. Derek Chauvin, 
the police officer who put his knee on George Floyd's neck, will be going to court. He's been charged with second-degree murder and manslaughter, and there will almost certainly be a trial. The outcome of that trial will have a lot to say about how we as a nation move through this moment. And the argument that inevitably is going to get made in that courtroom is an argument that has been made over and over again. And we had the chance a few years back to take a deep dive into the legal standard that sits at the heart of so many of these cases. Now, knowing that what's happening in the world has so much more, it's so much bigger than just what will happen in court. Still, we figured we could share and illuminate this one small corner of what is happening to all of us right now and what might happen to Derek Chauvin when he goes to trial for killing George Floyd. This story was originally released on our sister show, More Perfect, a couple of years ago. It was produced by Matt Keelty and Kelly Prime. At the end of this piece, we'll talk a little bit about how the current situation with uh, George Floyd might test the legal standard a little bit. Okay, here's Matt with the story. I think uh, we might as well just start... Should I try to sound Southern? ...with a guy named Woody Kinnett. I'm a lawyer with Essex Richards, a law firm in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, We'll pick it up in 1985. Back in 1985, I was a very young lawyer. I was 32 years old. I just started my own law firm, and I was taking about anything that came through the door. And one day, says Woody... This guy walked in. Uh, late 30s, uh, fairly thin. Five foot nine, five foot ten. On crutches. And he's, he's a black man. He is, or was. He's passed away, Mr. Graham. The man's name is Thorne Graham, and what he says, well, you know, like, what, what happened to your leg? What's with the crutches? And Thorne lays everything out for him. Here we go. So he was pulled over on West Boulevard in Charlotte, which is a four-lane road. DeThorne told Woody he worked for the city of Charlotte in the Department of Transportation. Own road crews doing road repairs. It was a Monday afternoon, and on that day, one of DeThorne's friends, a co-worker, stopped by his place. And after talking for a bit, Mr. Graham asked to be taken to a nearby convenience store that was only two or three blocks from his house. He needed some orange juice because he was uh, suffering the onset of a diabetic insulin reaction. So DeThorne hopped in his friend's car. They drove over to this convenience store. Thorne got out. Got a bottle of orange juice. Got to the checkout counter. But there's a line there, so he puts the bottle down and hurries out. Gets back in his friend's car. They take off. Now, uh, this is where the problems started. Turns out at the same time all that's happening, there's actually an officer. Who was African-American. Sitting in his squad car. And what that officer observed was a man hurrying out of the store, jumping into a waiting car, and quickly driving off. So he starts to tail DeThorne and his friend. And after a couple of blocks, pulled him over just to determine what was going on there. So he goes up to the driver's side, presumably gets DeThorne's buddy's driver's license, goes back to his squad car, starts radioing um, to get to get a hold of the convenience store to see if anything had happened. And it's right around that moment that DeThorne, who's in the passenger seat of the car, suddenly opened his door, got out of the car. Circled the car once or twice. Like sort of stumbled around it. Then he sat down on the curb. And he started going into shock. Uh, almost like a seizure he would have. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and it was terrifying. 
This is the Thorn Graham Jr. He was a type 1 diabetic. What is type 1 diabetes? Because I know it's 1 and 2. From what I understand, the type 1 diabetes is when your body just doesn't produce enough uh, insulin. And what would that seizure look like? Well, you know, I can one incident in particular, uh, I can remember us being in church and he got like this blank stare on his face and you see the beads of sweat come on his forehead. His body would seize up and he would shake and he would bite his tongue up. And, wow. and so I can remember my mother trying to, you know, force a spoon into his mouth to keep him from biting his tongue up. And the main thing was try to get some orange juice in him. That way it would raise his uh, blood sugar and, and once you got the orange juice in him, he'd sleep for a couple of hours and, and he'd wake up and he'd be exhausted, but he'd be alive. All right. So Charlotte City Street. At this point, four other officers arrived. The thorn has actually passed out on the curb. One of the officers rolled Mr. Graham over on the sidewalk and cuffed his hands behind his back. At one point, uh, one of the officers grabs the thorn by the handcuffs and picks him up off the curb from, from behind. Oh, wow. The thorn was sort of in and out at this point, I guess. He tries to tell the officers. That he was a diabetic, that he had a medical card in his wallet, asked the officer to pull the wallet out of his back pocket. And one of the officers said, ain't nothing wrong with the motherfucker, but he's drunk. At some point around here, the details are a little unclear. A pretty nasty scuffle ensued. According to what is known as case syllabus, uh, DeThorne was resisting the officers, and apparently one of the officers slammed DeThorne's head into his friend's car. He suffered head and shoulder injuries. He also ended up with a broken foot, cuts around his wrist, and eventually the officers pick him up, one on each arm, one on each leg, and just throw him into the back of a squad car. Hmm. While this was going on, um, a few people gathered around. Not long after that, the officers learned that nothing at all had happened at the convenience store. There was no crime. There was no robbery. There was no shoplifting. So they drove him back to his house, still in handcuffs. Pulled him out of the car. A friend at Thorne's house got him some OJ. And uh, the officers laid him out in his front yard, took the handcuffs off, and then just drove away. Huh. Was there an apology? Oh, no. Now, what came out of that day in Charlotte would end up becoming one of the most important Supreme Court cases in our history when it comes to policing. And what drew me in about this case is how something like... He needed some orange juice. That, something so seemingly small, would eventually become tied to... This. And all the shootings we've seen in the past few years, mostly of young black men... Every time we hear one of these shootings, every time there is an outcry, every time the cop gets off, this incident is looming in the shadows, shaping the outcome. In many ways, it has quietly defined the era that we're living in. And I wanted to know how. How did that happen? So after that day with the officers in Charlotte. The one thing I do remember Dad saying was that it wasn't right. DeThorne was going to fight. Right. and That is how he ends up walking into Woody's office on crutches in 1985. And he tells Woody, I want to sue the Charlotte Police Department. So we went ahead and just filed our lawsuit in federal court. Woody takes it to trial and basically his argument is that the police. They had used excessive force that was totally unnecessary under the circumstances. Like they roughed up a diabetic who was telling them that he was a diabetic. 
And eventually the judge presiding over the case ruled that no, no these officers did not use excessive force. And if you were going to claim that they did. We had to show that the police officers had acted maliciously for the purpose of causing harm. Huh. So they, they had to prove that the officers actually meant to hurt him? Yeah, that Woody and DeThorne had to prove that the officers had it out for DeThorne. And we simply couldn't do that. Yeah, that seems like a really hard thing to prove. It's an almost impossible standard to meet. And I think it's important to zoom in on this for, for a second because this is really kind of like the, the crux of the story. Um, if the question is what should the standard be for holding a cop accountable for their use of force, then in the mid-'80s, um, malicious intent was sort of the prevailing standard. If you're going to claim that a police officer used excessive force against you, then the standard was that you had to prove that the officer did so with malice in their heart. Why was that the standard? This is kind of hard to explain. I don't have the 14th Amendment in front of me, but it essentially says... All you really need to know is that it was connected to the 14th Amendment, to a particular clause in the 14th Amendment. And this is why Woody and DeThorne lost that case. Okay. All right, so loses at federal court. Loses at federal, makes its way up to... The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. That went nowhere. The Court of Appeals ruled against us. Same thing? Same thing. But then, not long after that ruling, Woody gets a phone call. Radio, can you hear me? From this guy. Yep. Jerry Beaver. A known civil rights lawyer in the area. In Fayetteville, North Carolina. Gerald was older and wiser than me. That's your wording, not mine. (laughs) Jerry had caught wind of the circuit decision and was just like, Oh, no, 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 no. You should not have to require that the police officer had it in for you and just wanted to beat the crap out of you just because it made him feel better. So I called Woody and said, are you guys planning on taking this case to the Supreme Court? And Woody was like, no. My client can't really afford that. I said, tell him he doesn't have to worry about that. We will be glad to take it on pro bono and see if we can get this ruling overturned. When he heard that, Woody said, sure, let's go. So Jerry and Woody get together and they start looking around like, like, what's out there? What cases can we draw on to argue that there should be a different standard? And this just so happened, this is the mid-80s, and there was this swell of police use of force cases kind of bubbling up in the courts. And you had lawyers trying out all these different ideas. Now, most of the courts were using the 14th Amendment malicious intent standard that Jerry and Woody didn't like. But then there was also, in a number of cases, the 8th Amendment. What's the 8th? Cruel and unusual punishment. Hey, Justice Breyer. The 8th is cruel and unusual punishment. Problem there. Which doesn't totally explain itself. What is cruel, what is unusual? Like, take the word cruel. Cruel seems to imply... Bad intent. ...that you're trying to hurt somebody, which means if you're going to prove anything, you still have to crawl inside somebody's head. Right. But... There was this other amendment that some of the courts were using that Woody and Jerry looked to as their sort of, like, redeemer. The Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment, which is... Well, which is the government cannot subject citizens to unreasonable search and seizure. I have it on my legal pad. The Fourth Amendment is the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And is seizure just another uh, word for force? Like I have the right not to be, like, beaten or shot by my government? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not just that, but yes, it, it also includes that. And to Jerry and Woody, what they like so much about the Fourth Amendment is that in there is this one important word, unreasonable, reasonable, reasonable. 
concept of reasonableness. What is reasonable and what is not reasonable. In law, reasonable is, is supposed to be objective. You look at the case from the facts of the case. You look at the who, what, where, when, not the why. Correct. And then you ask, was this person's behavior reasonable or not? They have to act with objective reasonableness. Wait a second. I mean, reasonableness is a slippery thing. What you find reasonable, what I find reasonable. Could very well be different. Could be completely different. Yes and no. It, it can feel slippery, but legally... The whole concept of reasonableness had hundreds of years of precedent. I mean, I, I find this very... So in the original piece, know. we went into a long bit about the history of this idea of a reasonable person, reasonable in quotes, person. Uh, this was an idea that uh, had been applied in English law and U.S. law for years and years and years. But the point here is that Woody and Jerry were for the first time taking this standard and bringing it to bear on police actions. And I think like what, what Woody and Jerry were essentially trying to do is to say we need to use the Fourth Amendment and this idea of unreasonable search and seizure to create a reasonable officer. So Riley, the case is submitted. In 1989, almost five years after everything happened to DeThorne Graham, that one day in Charlotte... We'll hear argument next to number 876571. His case went before the Supreme Court. DeThorne Graham versus M.S. Connor. Now, DeThorne wasn't there for the arguments. What he was there... As a spectator to watch. Jerry was actually arguing the case. Did you have butterflies? Of course. You may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. And... Pretty quickly, these arguments... You don't know it's completely unreasonable unless begin- you know what the subjective intent of the officers are. ...turn into, like, this That's word soup. Some objective standard. Where you got Jerry... Objective. Uh, whatever. The lawyer for the officers. Subjective. The justices. The objective-subject dichotomy, but just All getting super meta about what constitutes objectivity. Objectively unreasonable. Subjectivity. Subjective factor have... Analysis, tests, and standards. Severe objective tests. The objective analysis... Bad intent. No intent. Subjective intent. I think we're playing with words there. Until one justice, uh, Thurgood Marshall, the lone African-American on the court, comes in and just asks, What reason was there for handcuffing a diabetic in a coma? At the time, the officers didn't know that he was a uh, diabetic in a coma. uh, What was he doing that was so violent that he had to be handcuffed? You have to go back one step even before that. Officer Connor saw a petitioner act in a very suspicious and unusual manner. Hurry Violent? No, it wasn't clear. He saw him hurry into a convenience store. Well, what did he out. do that was violent? Excuse me? What did he do that was violent? Mr. Berry's anybody. testimony, as petitioner's own witness, said that uh, petitioner was throwing his hands around, that Barry had asked for Officer Connor's well, What was he doing? I'm talking about before they put the handcuffs on him. What was he doing before they tried to put the handcuffs on him? He was acting in a very bizarre manner. He ran out of the car, circled around it twice, and then sat down. The district court... Was that threatening anybody? Did he strike anybody? Well, the officers didn't have did to wait s- until he did was... He, did he strike anybody? I don't believe the record indicates that he struck anybody. Did he anybody. threaten to strike anybody? He was acting in, a, in an unpredictable and potentially dangerous he, manner. Can you answer? Did he threaten to strike anybody? He did not overtly threaten to strike anyone. Did he have a weapon of any kind? Uh, the record doesn't indicate, I don't believe. He, the record didn't show he had a weapon of any kind. That's correct. But the record. Why was he handcuffed? The record shows that he was properly stopped. 
as a suspect for a criminal investigation, that he was acting suspiciously, that he was acting in a bizarre manner. Indeed, even after he was handcuffed and the officers went to put him in the car, the undisputed record shows that he was vigorously fighting and kicking. Well, shouldn't a diabetic object to being arrested rather than given treatment? He wasn't arrested. He was never arrested. Why was he handcuffed? He was handcuffed because the officers were concerned that he was a criminal suspect. He was acting in a very unusual and erratic way. He was throwing his hands around. Indeed, the district court stated from the record that he was handcuffed in part to protect himself as well as the officers and well, others. protect himself. That's the, the uh, district court summarized the record uh, as indicating that. That's correct. Now, may I differ? When Justice Marshall said that, suddenly I heard a judge who understood our point of view, somebody gets it, and all of a sudden I felt like I was not an idiot after all. The court eventually puts out their opinion. It's written by the Chief Justice William Rehnquist, and in that opinion, Rehnquist says... Uh, skipping down here a little bit, um, claims that law enforcement officials have used excessive force in the course of an arrest, investigatory stop, or other quote-unquote seizure of a free citizen are most properly characterized as invoking the protections of the Fourth Amendment, which guarantees citizens the right to be secure in their persons against unreasonable seizures and must be judged by reference to the Fourth Amendment's reasonableness standard. So they get their reasonable officer standard? They get it, and they get it unanimously. The nine-nothing opinion. Whoa. It was a breakthrough. I don't think it'd be a stretch to say uh, that at the time, to a lot of people who were concerned about police brutality, uh, police use of force, it felt like this was the beginning of a new era. That favored plaintiffs and claimants. Because now, if you were a victim of police violence and you wanted some justice, you had this new universal standard. An objective standard. We no longer had to show that the officers acted maliciously or sadistically. You don't have to get inside the officer's head. You don't have to prove that they had bad intent. You just look at the case. From the facts of the case. And you say, would a reasonable officer do the same thing or not? And you could establish like what a reasonable officer is, what they would do by uh, calling experts, looking at data about age and rank and experience, all sorts of things. But the thought was that this would be objective. For the first time in hundreds of years, maybe they would have an objective standard. That was a breakthrough. So after winning, did the case get kicked back down to the circuit? Like what happens to DeThorne? Um, after we won in the Supreme Court, the case went back to the trial court level for another trial. That okay. was the effect of it. And so Mr. Graham had another day in court, another trial. We picked another jury. The facts were presented. Diabetic, insulin reaction, bottle of orange juice, pulled him over. Unconscious. Handcuffed. Physical altercation. Broken foot. Lacerations, wrists, bruised forehead. Squad car. Front yard. Essentially, he was a guy who did nothing wrong and was beaten up. The case was given to the jury. And the jury was told, okay, knowing what you now know, take this standard, this reasonableness standard, and ask yourself, is what happened to the Thorne Graham reasonable? The jury deliberated, came back out. And they decided in favor of the police officers. Mr. Graham lost. 
Now, whether you think this is reasonable or not, the jury really focused in on the police officer's perspective. And from the officer's perspective, all they saw was a black man running in and out of a convenience store. They thought he might be stealing something. They had no idea he was a diabetic. And when the police picked him up... He was a little bit out of control. He's acting weird. He's running around the car. Creating trouble. Not because he's a diabetic. But he's a drunk. Might be dangerous. A reasonable officer would subdue that person. Excuse me, I'm so sorry. Oh, is that a doorbell here? There goes the dogs again. Oh, the dogs. <laughs> so when I talked to Thorne Graham Jr., he was actually moving from his home in St. Louis. Ryan, I'm just going to open the garage up for this guy. Back to where he still had a lot of family in Charlotte. Okay, I'm, I'm back. Hopefully, All right, cool. we're okay now. Um, I, I was just wondering, did your dad talk about, the, about what happened that day, or did he talk about the court case at all? No, he didn't. It wasn't something that he talked about. DeThorne Jr. says that his dad was just kind of trying to get on with his life. He he started making furniture in his spare time. Going to church a lot. But he had his he had his troubles. He had uh he ended up having uh, uh substance abuse issues. So uh and which fortunately he he was able to overcome that and that was after the Supreme Court case, after the That's correct. That's correct. Hmm. And so I mean I don't know if his his way of trying to deal with that was through substance abuse. I don't know. You know, I, you know, when you are dehumanized like that, when when another individual, whether they, it's you know, it's 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 kind of hard to explain, Matt. But mm-hmm. when when someone who has authority just it's. It's it's like it's they it's like they take something away from you when someone does something like that to you. It strikes at your core. It strikes at your very being, and I think you lose a part of yourself that you can't get back. Dethorn Graham Sr. died in the year two thousand. He was fifty-four years old. But after his death, his name lived on in this case in this very weird way. So 2014. Rumors growing outrage tonight after an unarmed African-American teenager was shot and killed by police in the St. Louis suburb of Ferguson, Missouri. Not far from where DeThorne Jr. lives, a white officer, Darren Wilson, shot and killed a black teenager, Michael Brown. A reporter from CNN contacted me. And uh, he talked about how uh, they were going to use my dad's case during that trial. As a defense for the officer. The CNN reporter informed me, do you know about this? No, I, I had no idea. The grand jury deliberated over two days, making their final decision. One of the questions posed to the jury was, did Officer Darren Wilson act reasonably when he shot Michael Brown? They determined that no probable cause exists to file any charge against Officer Wilson and returned a no true bill on each of the five indictments. And the jury was basically like, yeah, that was reasonable. They think this is a fucking joke. They killed her baby, man. They want him back in Ferguson. I can't get nobody back. We gonna get Later that same year... The 12-year-old boy shot and killed by two officers while holding a pellet gun. Tamir Rice. We are instructed to ask what a reasonable police officer would do in this particular situation. 
The jury found that the officer who shot and killed the 12-year-old boy, Tamir Rice, acted reasonably. And then... Eric Garner. A grand jury in New York City has refused to indict yet another white police officer said to have killed an unarmed black man. His death was reasonable. John Crawford. 22-year-old black man killed last month. Reasonable. Carrying around a BB gun. After a judge declared a mistrial today. Samuel DeBose. In the case of a white police officer who killed an unarmed black man. Reasonable. With Sterling on his back. Alton Sterling. One officer pulls his gun. Reasonable. Sterling, late dying on the street. Terrence Crutcher. An unarmed black man. Reasonable. Shot and killed by police in Oklahoma. Charlotte police. Keith Lamont Scott, Jamar Clark. This city killed my son. Philando Castile, reasonable. Are you kidding me right now? We're not evolving as a civilization. We're devolving. We're going back down to 1969. Damn! And in almost every one of those cases, Graham versus Connor, the Supreme Court decision that many people felt was supposed to establish a new universal standard that would deliver justice for victims of police violence. In almost every one of those cases, it ended up doing the exact opposite. It prevented the victims from getting relief and instead protected the cops. One person, my, my colleague who covers cops, describes it as like cops, cops see it as like their First Amendment. After the break, we'll ask, how did that happen? And we'll watch it happen. We'll be back in a moment. Hi, this is Dustin Raudzong from Troy, Alabama. Radio Lab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radio Lab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So, what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you are learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations, café s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year. Here is a special limited time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash Radiolab, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Radiolab. Rules and restrictions may apply. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. I'm Jad, this is Radio Lab. One of the things that sets this incident apart, the George Floyd incident, I mean, 
I say that because the Radiolab piece that we were playing and will continue to play in a second was made a few years ago. So this is me back in the present. One of the things that sets this case apart from all the other incidents where a black person has been killed by a police officer is that no one is defending it. You've got police and police administrators stepping forward and saying, this was not reasonable. Nonetheless, that is the standard that Chauvin may face in court. And as we all know, in dozens of similar cases where a black person has been killed by a police officer, the officers have never been found guilty. Almost never happens. And so the question that I asked producer Matt Keelty and Kelly Prime was why? Well, that's it's because uh, the reasonable officer standard, like from from the moment that it was created, uh, it was actually kind of it was constrained in a few very important ways. And, yeah, and actually, uh, like um, I have here the the jury instructions from the Ninth Circuit, and this is what jury members are are told to think about when they have to assess this kind of use of force. Case. Oh, sweet. You just want to read those? Yeah, yeah. And this so, is what the jury, jurors are actually told. This is your job? Yeah, exactly. Just a back ID, primetime Kelly Prime? Yeah. <laughs> so it says, under the Fourth Amendment, a police officer may use only such force as is objectively reasonable. Uh, you must judge the reasonableness of a particular use of force from the perspective of a reasonable officer on the scene and not with 2020 vision of hindsight. Those those are um, a couple really crucial phrases, which is perspective of uh, an officer on the scene. So you have to look at it through the eyes of the officer on the scene. And then you can't look at it through the 2020 vision of hindsight. So you have to put yourself in the shoes of an officer in the moment and look at the world through their eyes. And, and that's how you have to understand these things. Right. And where did, that, where, did, where did that idea come from? So that comes from Graham. Like that comes from uh, the Chief Justice uh, William Rehnquist's uh, opinion, which I have right here. The reasonableness of a particular use of force must be judged from the perspective of a reasonable officer on the scene rather than with the 2020 vision of hindsight. And its calculus must embody an allowance for the fact, and this is extremely important, that police officers are often forced to make split-second decisions about the amount of force necessary in a particular situation. And so, as you can see, this, this idea of reasonableness is circumscribed very tightly by time. It's not asking, like, what a reasonable officer would do here in, in general during a moment where, um, where they have to use force. Instead, what it's asking is, what would a reasonable officer do in this split-second in this little tiniest sliver of time where, where the force actually occurred. And in fact, that moment legally has come to be known um, as a superseding event. Meaning what? What does that mean? Um, meaning, uh, this is, I find this kind of crazy. Uh, meaning that, that that moment, that superseding event, it, it essentially it breaks the chain of causation. So if, if you think of time as just this like continuous flow, this is like no you break that, you stop that, and you take this one little moment and you pluck it out, and you're like, this moment, this is the one moment that you look at. That's all that they can think about, the jurors. Right. And it turns out if you ask a jury the question about use of force that way, about this one little moment, the Graham standard that many people thought um, and hoped would, would help victims of police violence does the exact opposite. One person, my, my colleague who covers cops, describes it as like cops cops see it as like their First Amendment. They just think of it like as a shield? Yeah. Okay, so this is NPR reporter Kelly McEvers, um, host of Embedded. 
podcast and all things considered. So Kelly's actually, uh, she's covered police shootings for the past like year for NPR. And we've sort of been comparing notes with her as we've been producing our story. And a little while back, uh, she sent us an email basically saying that she had this opportunity to go and see something that most people don't get to see, to sort of see how cops are actually trained to understand Graham. And so she asked us, do you want in? And we were like, yeah. Let's go! Okay, so I went to Cleveland. For this two-day training course called street survival. It was in a hotel ballroom. One of those hotel ballrooms where you have like a big conference and... How many people? Do you remember? Um, there was somewhere just under 200. Um, cops. <laughs> Lots of really jacked dudes with tats. Mostly white. There were some sergeants, some lieutenants. Rookies right out of the academy, some mid-career guys. From all over Ohio, Pennsylvania. And they were not super happy about me being there. Did you get, like, angry stares? I mean, in the beginning, there's just, like, a lot of side eye. Good morning, Cleveland. How's everybody doing? Good. How many of you have been to a Caliber Press seminar before? Please show hands. Let's do it this way. Who's never been here before? Never been to a Caliber Press class? Oh, wow. Good. Good deal. Kelly said the whole thing is put on by this company. Called Caliber Press. It's a company that's actually been around for a really long time, and they teach classes. Classes that are aimed at police departments. Uh, they offer them all across the country. And this particular one... Uh, we're going to talk a lot about stress, survival instincts. The general idea is how to survive and, like, make it to retirement. I mentioned heart attacks, emotional health, suicide. You know, how to basically do this job and... It's really about 24-7 survival. And live. Living and lasting a 25, 30-year career. They talk a lot about self-care. What do you eat? About sleep and exercise. Uh, My wife and I talked about this. If if I start getting crabby, there's something else there. Making sure that your spouse and your family, like, understand the stresses of your job, and they talk about going to therapy. I mean, it's like... There's times when it's this really touchy-feely kind of thing. I started getting overwhelmed. I didn't know what was happening with me. There was even a moment, she says, when an officer got up, uh, talked about contemplating suicide. My wife kept on telling me I needed to get help. I started secluding myself. I started alienating myself. I was fucking hating everybody. Everyone was, like, crying. So, I mean, it's a really intense couple of days. But for our purposes, the reason we were there, or the reason we were excited for Kelly to be there, is that a big chunk of the class... So, all right, let's talk about the... ...is devoted to Graham. About Graham versus Connor and uh, us actually using force. About teaching these cops how to understand Graham and and how it impacts their lives. Um, and by the way, this is the instructor, the, like, Graham instructor. His name is Jim Glennon. He himself was a cop for years and years and years. I was in charge of use of force for 18 years. I was a lieutenant outside of Chicago. And I tell you, we talked about Graham versus Connor and our, our use of force uh, policies on a regular basis. I don't mean I got up four times a year and just read. What I would do is show a video, and then let's talk about Graham versus Connor based on this video. So, fired at the projector. Come on. It is really interesting to see these videos from their perspective. Like this one. Video of a Fresno police... September 2015, a guy named Freddie Centeno. 40-year-old Freddie Centeno. He's gone to a woman's house 
like, to a woman's front door and threatened her and says he has a gun. And the cops pull up. Get out of their car. They're just, like, 20 feet away from Centeno, who's walking towards them on the sidewalk. Hey, Fred, Get on the ground! Get on the ground! Ten shots. Seven of them hit. The sequence was 47 frames long. That translates to about 1.566 seconds. Jim's claims it happens in 1.566 seconds. Four-year-old mentally disabled man is hit seven times and dies in the hospital 23 days later. And in one of these news clips that Jim shows, the lawyer for Freddie Centeno's family is basically just like... This is a, a, you know, a bad shooting. It's, it's an atrocity. Like, this was an atrocity. Nothing about this use of force should be considered reasonable. Because the cops in this situation, they rolled right up on Freddie Centeno. They didn't create any space. They didn't give Freddie Centeno any time. They tell him, get on the ground. He didn't have a chance to get on the ground. One second before he began to fire. In Gazar's view, the video shows the officers did not give Centeno a chance to respond to their commands. So Jim plays all these reaction clips. And then... Here's what happens. It's real quick. He plays the original body cam video again. Hey, Fred You see Freddie Centeno. They tell him to get on the ground. He doesn't. And then Jim slows the video down. And when he does, you can see Centeno's right hand reaches into his pocket. Jim pauses. And he's like, take a look at this right here. And up on the screen, Jim has this frozen moment where you can see that Freddie Centeno's hand has started to move. The movement of a hand a couple of inches. Just starting to come up out of his pocket. This moment from the pocket to the out of the pocket. This to Jim was the moment. The moment. Remember that word. Jim's like, this is the only moment that matters. Like, forget what happened before. Forget that the officers rolled right up on Centeno. Forget that they weren't giving him much time or space. It's this moment right here. When Centeno starts pulling his hand out of his pocket, this is the moment where you ask the question, what would a reasonable officer do right now? This man appears to be pulling out an object from his pocket. I can't tell what it is, and you probably can't either without outside information. Turns out he had a, a nozzle from a garden hose. What was the call? Malady gun. However, you see this, whether he started moving up or down, he doesn't go to the ground. He goes into his pocket and pulls something out. They think it's a gun, and a reasonable person would think it's a gun. And so... Does this work under Grant? Yeah. It's, it, it's sad, yeah. But yes. Yes. Under Grant, it's fine. For him, he's just like over and over and over stresses. What would a reasonable police officer do? At the moment you use force. In that moment. What did you know? Not what you could have known, not what you should have known. What did you know? What was going on? Look what it says up there. He talks about Rehnquist and the decision. He's like, what Rehnquist said is... Allowance must be made for the fact police officers are often forced to make split-second judgments in circumstances that are tense, uncertain, rapidly evolving about the amount of force that is necessary in a particular situation. This is fast, it's dynamic, it's nothing like television. There's no five cameras on it, there's no change in the music, there's no upswell in the music. It's fast, and the court recognizes that. This is an Albuquerque case. Jim plays another example, uh, this one of a guy. The gun! A white guy who police officers shot because they thought he had a gun. Guy did not have a gun. Guy had a knife, but the cops had gotten a call that he had a gun, and in this split second, he raised his arm like he was raising a gun up, and so the cops shot him. Does this work under Grant? Yeah. Another one. I talked to this officer. He uh, gets a call to a uh, domestic. Showed another video of a police officer shooting an unarmed white man in the head. And again, he walked through it beat by beat. With Grant, you got to put yourself in that officer's position, right? Said you got to look at just the superseding moment. Forget everything else. And what you realize if you do that 
if you force someone, say a jury, to look at just that one moment, forgetting everything else, just look at this one slice through the eyes of an officer, then the whole concept of what is reasonable shifts. And the only real question you can ask when the moment is so confined is, did the officer feel threatened? Like, was the fear that that officer had a reasonable fear in that moment? And that is a very different standard than what Woody and Jerry and Thorn Graham had intended. Um, yeah, so... So what we learned at that point was the way in which this reasonableness standard had been reduced to apply just to a particular moment, a slice of a moment. And in many of these cases, the central question then became simply, was the officer afraid in that moment? And... In the context of these killings, as Kelly McEvers pointed out to us, that is a very loaded question. Like, this is the thing. Like, if you're white, are you more likely to say, yes, that was reasonable because he's white and he was afraid of a black man? Right. Like, that is the question. I don't know. Given the history of our country, I'd say in many cases that's not even a question. Right. Right. But I guess the question I'm actually left with is, if this is where the reasonableness standard has led us, is there another standard? I think that's right. This is Woody Kinnett again. He represented DeThorn Graham in that original case. Um, When you see it applied, you wonder whether or not this is the best standard or there might be something better. I just don't have an answer to that. I, I, I I would suggest a whole more radical standard then. This is Ellie Mistal, More Perfect's legal editor. Uh, we ended up talking with him about this uh, shortly after the Philando Castile verdict came out. So he was, uh, well, that was a tough pill for him and many people to swallow. I would suggest that they have to be, the cops have to be right in fact, which is something we usually do not apply to the law. What does that mean? Like from a, in, a, in the scenario of a police person who's... Does that mean, like, I need so to be you, right that you don't have a toy gun? Yeah. Is that that's what you mean? Yeah. So if you shoot me because you think I have a gun, I had best have a gun. And if I don't have a gun, your ass is going to jail because you were wrong. I don't care if you really thought so. I don't care if I was telling you I had a gun. If, I, if you are not right in fact, then you have to go to jail. I think that, is the, that would be a standard that would allow us to prosecute these police officers. But then a police person is going to just going to argue that like you don't sure. understand the pressures that sure. I'm under. It's a split second decision. Sure. Monday morning quarterbacking. Sure. If you do what you just said, we're not going to be able to do our jobs. And I would say, fuck you, police officer. I'm sick of you. I would say, screw you. You have had your chance. Mm-hmm. You have had your chance to police my community without murdering us. And you have failed for 300 years. Enough. That's what I would say to that. More people might get hurt if I wasn't I'm willing to risk that. I'm willing to try it that way then. Gotcha. I'm, I'd, rather, I'd rather 10 illegal shoplifting people go free than one illegal shoplifting person get shot in the street like an animal. Gotcha. If you want to talk about changing the standards, that is a standard change that could help. Now, that is, as Ellie said, radical and probably not realistic given that most Americans, according to polls, uh, respect the police, have confidence in the police, perceive police to be you know, the enforcers of the law. But there are other ideas out there that are starting to bubble up. 
And if what's constraining us, if what's keeping us stuck where we are are the words of Graham, then what offers us a way out could actually also be hiding in there. What do you mean? Okay, so you know how um, Chief Justice Rehnquist, when he wrote the decision in 89, he put in uh, all these phrases that took the idea of a reasonable officer and and constrained it. So uh, these were like, um, it's constrained only to this little moment in time. It's constrained to the perspective of the officers, uh, constrained that there's no 2020 hindsight, all of that stuff. Well, in the decision, he also he slipped in this other phrase. Uh, He was actually calling back to an earlier decision. And what he wrote was, um, the question is whether the totality of circumstances justifies a particular sort of seizure. The totality of circumstances. Totality of circumstances, which seems to be at odds with all of the other stuff. Right, which is all about like little slivers and moments. Yeah, it's about all these little tiny little bits of time where totality seems to be suggesting that this is like... This is the whole thing. So he had both both ideas in there at once? Yeah, which is why right now you see the lower courts are arguing about what this phrase actually means. And so half of the circuits are saying kind of like everything that we've already talked about, which is that all the totality of circumstances means is that you look at everything to answer the question, was the officer scared? You look at everything that the officer would have known, everything the officer would have seen, perceived, and then you ask, okay, knowing all that, was it reasonable for the officer to be scared in the moment? The other half of the circuit say, no, 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 totality of circumstances isn't just about what the officer knew, what the officer saw, and how it answers the moment. Totality means, like, totality. Like, what did the officer do leading up to the moment? Did the officer try to get a, a search warrant? Did the officer try to de-escalate the situation before uh, using force? Did the officer try to subdue the person before using deadly force? Like suddenly all those things that are usually kept out of the frame maybe can be let back in. The Supreme Court so far has shown no interest in ruling on this, in trying to sort this out. But they might, because the argument is happening in the lower courts. So in, in a way, we're kind of living at a time very much like 1984 when DeThorne Graham got pulled over outside a convenience store in Charlotte, waiting to see whether it matters that DeThorne Graham wasn't trying to steal anything, that he was just a diabetic trying to get some orange juice. Okay, so we first reported this story in 2017. And after the death of George Floyd which sparked global protests after charges were brought against the officers involved, we at the show began to ask ourselves, how would this standard, this reasonable officer standard, which has been used as a defense for cops again and again and again, how might it apply here? Safe. And then, so I, I sound okay? Is yeah, that... you do sound good. Or would it even be used? So I, had, I called a few different people and was told yes, but not... Not quite in the way that maybe I would expect. Well, actually, one thing before I get into this, I wanted yeah. to ask you, you happen to have the charging document from L- So I was talking to this guy, Sharag Baines, who used to try use of force cases and civil rights cases. Okay, I'm just waiting for it to come through. Okay, I got it. So Derek Chauvin is the officer who was pushing his knee into George Floyd's neck. And he is facing, among other things, um, second-degree unintentional murder. Okay. And to kind of over, oversimplify this, basically means that 
Um, the charge is that Chauvin, by pushing his knee into George Floyd's neck for nine minutes, whether he intended to or not, led to his death. And the thing that Chirac said to me that was kind of surprising is that because this is a criminal case, it's not the, the reasonableness standard isn't going to be the front and center defense here for Chauvin. So what might the defense be? One defense will be he didn't cause the death. Really? Um, so they're going to argue that somehow the force being applied to his neck wasn't what killed him? Right. He's going to use likely the what was in the initial uh, autopsy report saying that um, Floyd didn't die of asphyxiation and that there were these underlying health issues. Counterargument from the prosecution will be George Floyd wouldn't be dead if it were not for Derek Chauvin. Right. He wasn't going to die you know, 17 minutes later if he was just sitting in his car or doing whatever else. It was, it was Derek Chauvin's knee in George Floyd's neck that triggered his death. Hmm. There's clear causation as required for criminal statutes. I think Chauvin loses that defense. So another argument Chauvin's lawyers might make is that George Floyd... He was resisting at certain points. He's very strong. And so they might try to claim self-defense. Even in the Rodney King case where he was being beaten over and over and over, there were self-defense claims because it'll, it'll be like the minute details. He moved, you couldn't see this on the video, but he moved his leg a little bit and I was telling him to put his leg down. This, this sort of thing they'll say, we didn't know. They'll try okay. that. And then the prosecution would say... No, no way. The prior stuff was minimal, and it was prior. He's handcuffed. He's, yeah, he's on his chest. Right. He's on his chest. I mean, he's got three officers on top of him. He's not resisting in any way. So I think the defense will be made. It shouldn't prevail. So then Chirag said, okay, so the, it might be that at this point you would see a reasonable standard defense. In that, in Minnesota state law, I pulled a couple of statutes, there is some authorization for use of force. And, you know, it says... Reasonable force may be used upon or toward the person of another without their consent by a police officer, by a public officer in effecting a lawful arrest. Basically arguing it's not criminal if it's reasonable. It can't be criminal to use force if he's used it consistent with that law. And so one thing that's been floating out there is that at the time of this incident in the Minneapolis Police Department's uh, policy and procedure manual, it did state that you could use a neck restraint. You could use your knee on somebody's neck to restrain them so long as you weren't blocking, uh, you weren't putting force on their trachea or blocking their airway. Hmm. You can even apply that force according to the manual to the point where somebody passes out. They could, that could be one way they frame this reasonableness argument. They'll just point to 60906 and say like, look, that says reasonable force. I thought it was reasonable force. But the problem for Chauvin is that to use that uh, type of force, a neck restraint force, to the point that somebody is unconscious, you have to believe that someone else's life is in danger. You have to be struggling with um, a suspect who is uh, aggressively, actively resisting arrest. And Chirag says, again, like, look, George Floyd clearly was not even capable of actively resisting. But there's no world in which this is reasonable. There'll be so many people lined up who should say this is unreasonable, right? Like we right. saw never seen before police chiefs come out on Twitter. Public right, exactly. Right. So I think there's a major consensus it's unreasonable. And then him saying, well, I, I wasn't trying to constrict his breathing. I was doing something else. He may try to do that. You know, Chauvin may say that. The response to that will be, whatever you were intending to do doesn't matter. It's what you did. I, you know, I cannot see any scenario using even the Graham standard that that is reasonable. So one of the other people I spoke to was uh, Don Lewis, who is an attorney in Minneapolis. And 
And it was actually Don who who told me this thing about reasonableness that I didn't expect, that that it probably it won't show up in Chauvin's case. But it will be at the heart of this case, primarily with the um, accomplice officers. The other three officers who were at the scene who have now been charged with aiding and abetting. We've already had a hint today. Uh, the, 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 the officers had their initial appearance today, which is kind of the first appearance. You just show up and, hey, may, you know, identify yourself and... Do you have a lawyer and set bail and all that kind of stuff? And Don said one of those officers. Thomas Lane. He was one of the officers on top of George Floyd. Holding down, I think, his leg. His lawyer in this preliminary hearing said. Well, what is an officer supposed to do? You know, um, and, you know, he's supposed to do what he's trained to do. And Don Don explained that Derek Chauvin was the senior officer there at the scene. Uh, he was a 19-year veteran. He had trained officers in how to use force. And so the, the other two officers who were on top of George Floyd, Officer Lane and Officer Kung. These were the two younger officers who had been on the force for, I don't know exactly how long, but it could be less than a year. And they are basically following the lead of the 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 principal officer, Chauvin. And at one point, Thomas Lane says, you know, I think we should, something, I'm paraphrasing, he's saying, you know, I think we should roll him over because he looks like he's in distress. And he says something along those lines twice. And Chauvin says, no, we're going to keep him right here. And, and Don said from the perspective of the defense, if you're Officer Lane or Officer Kung, you were doing what a reasonable officer would be doing. Obeying you know, the, the senior officer on the scene who's telling me that this is the proper way to do things. Now, and it gets like it gets tricky. Like that very well might be an argument the defense makes. But if you look at Minneapolis, the Minneapolis Police Department's procedure and policy manual uh, in the use of force section, there is a small category there about uh, duty to intervene. Mm. That an officer has a sworn duty to intervene if they see another officer essentially doing something that they think is unreasonable. Wow, it is. It is true. That I mean, it's interesting just given the conversations that are happening just in the at large that. The real reasonableness questions are not, did this guy apply force appropriately to George Floyd? Anyone who answers yes is just insane. But it's it's actually like the people with him, what responsibility do, do they carry? Which is, you know, the big conversation that everyone's having right now, which is the people that are silent, the white people that are silent, what responsibility do they, we have, right? Um, it's interesting that, that that the legal question about reasonableness might actually be the context around the force or the the bystanders or the the people adjacent to the force um the people who could speak up and intervene um it is interesting I, that's not what i expected but that makes a lot of sense yeah i mean do you do you uh, there's when looking at the video it seems so clear like it i, I feel so certain that that these officers and, and Chauvin will be will be convicted because because the video is just so damning. Yeah. yeah. But then again, it's like, I, I feel like I've had a similar thought in the past and. Well, you know, the, the, you know, I, I, you know, prosecuted the Philando Castile. I was what the special prosecutor in the Philando Castile matter. So you know, I, Philando Castile, this was 2016. Uh, he was driving. He had a gun in the car when he was pulled over by a police officer. Philando Castile told the arresting officer that he had a gun in the car, that he was licensed to carry a gun. And most likely, while reaching for his license, made a move with his hand towards his waist. A move that the officer 
and the officer was frightened. He thought he was reaching for the gun and he shot him. That's a perfect example of where this reasonable police officer standard, you know, fits. There's a gun. Things are happening fast. I recognize the ambiguity there. But as Don pointed out, as as anybody points out, like there's there's just no ambiguity when it comes to George Floyd's death. But let me cite an example that you would have thought would have been a clear-cut case, the Walter Scott case in South Carolina. This is a case where a black man, again, it's a traffic stop, stopped by a white officer. Uh, eventually, a physical altercation ensues, and while Walter Scott is running away... Running away unarmed. He's shot in the back. I mean, the jury hung. You know, it's... Yeah. But, you know, one thing that is kind of missing from all this, and I don't see this embedded in, in the Graham versus Connor or any other standard, but let's, let's not forget, we got to step back and say, why are we, you know, you know, I wish the officers would at a moment sometimes step back and say, okay, why did I come here to begin with? And the answer to this question is, a convenience store owner called because someone passed him a counterfeit 20. And where am I now? I'm strangling somebody to death. Why aren't people thinking about that? This story was produced and reported by Matt Kielty with a big assist from co-producer Kelly Prime. Whether objective or unreasonable behavior alone is enough. Reasonable requirement. They have to know. They have to know. Also thanks to producer Adam Kewen. I'm Jad Abumrad. Thanks for listening. Shock One calling in from Columbia, South Carolina. Radio Lab is created by Jad Abumrad with Robert Krolwich and produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Gebel, Bethel Hapti, Tracy Hunt, Matt Kilty, Annie McCune, Latif Nasser, Sarah Kari, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Shima Oliayi, W. Harry Fortuna, Sarah Sandback, Melissa O'Donnell, Tad Davis, and Russell Gregg. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>